You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off this week. We're getting a much clearer picture of the human toll from the ongoing uncertainty surrounding the Surrey Police Service. Our Catherine Urquhart spoke with one officer who moved all the way from Ontario with his family to be a part of the force and has no intention of moving to another force if SPS goes away. When a triple shooting happened near the South Surrey Athletic Park last July, Surrey Police Service Sergeant Mohit Paul was among the first officers on scene. Sergeant Paul relocated to Surrey with his wife and two children just over a year ago, leaving behind a job with the Toronto Police Service. I like the fact that uh, I'm able to use my language skills a lot and connect with the community. Uh, something, uh, an opportunity that they didn't necessarily have in, in Toronto. Now Sergeant Paul says he and others are contemplating their futures in case the SPS is disbanded. If the SPS fail to exist or, or move forward, it would most likely mark the end of my policing career. The 38-year-old is among 57 SPS employees who came from out of province to work for the new department, which now has a total of 374 employees. Terminating them would cost an estimated $81.5 million, according to Surrey Police. An employment lawyer who has reviewed the collective agreement says that's likely a worst-case scenario. The employer could choose to give working notice and then second the services of those police officers to another type of organization and recoup the costs with an arrangement with the alternate organization. Alternatively, if the police service board decides to give severance pay, it's subject to a duty to mitigate. That would mean officers who find new employment during the severance period would no longer receive all of that severance money. For SPS members, it's a lot to think about. I may go back to school to further my education, uh, or I may uh, look for other employment opportunities that are not related to the field of policing in general. But for now, the father of two from Toronto continues to walk the beat in Surrey. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the SPS transition. Keith, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is going to have the final say on this. Mm -hmm. Are you picking up anything, which way he might be leaning uh, at the legislature? I'm picking up nothing but bad news for Brenda Locke's plan to go back to the RCMP over here. Chris has been talking to a lot of senior people in government the last two weeks. A lot of people taken aback by just how many people have been hired by Surrey uh, Police Services. A, a lot of people were taken aback. Uh, the pledge uh, signed by almost 300 officers saying they're not going to go back to the RCMP if that's what's required. So Brenda Locke is still going to be able to issue a report to Mike Farnworth at the end of this month, November 28th. They'll take a look at it. But I think right now, from what I'm picking up, she has a very, very tough set road ahead of her. A lot of skepticism, skepticism over here at the ability to go backwards when the transition is so far down the track. Mm, more drama ahead for sure. All right, thanks very mm -hmm. much, Keith. A Surrey family has been without power for nearly two weeks after a windstorm blew trees onto their home. Communication issues and a bureaucratic back and forth have kept them in the dark, suffering through some cold nights ever since. But as Sarah McDonald shows us, help is on the way. Her yard is unrecognizable, scattered with the remnants of the windstorm that left much of the Lower Mainland without power earlier this month. But for Elise Daniel and her family, the downed trees are far from the only reminder of what happened November 5th. Today is day 11. 
uh, and we have no power and we have been keeping warm by the fireplace. So we are camped out in the living room, myself and my two daughters. Uh, they're on a mattress on the floor. Daniel, her husband and their two young daughters have been huddled together in their Surrey home without power for nearly two weeks. Caught up in bureaucracy ever since trees on neighboring public property came crashing onto theirs the night of the storm. Uh, they fell onto the power line in the front of the house and then um, I wasn't concerned because we still had power. <laughs> but when I called to report it, they were concerned. So they sent the fire trucks. The fire trucks came, roped off the whole road and didn't want anybody to come through and said that they would call hydro to come disconnect us. Crews arrived quickly to do that. But since then, the family has been navigating a maze of insurance claims, city permits, and a frustrating back and forth with BC Hydro to get their power back on. The electrician had to submit a permit to the city to be able to do the work. Then that permit has to get, like, to get authorized to say okay to do the work. Once he's done the work, then he had to, um, has to be inspected. And once it's inspected, then we get a declaration that entire process took longer than a week, and on Thursday, Daniel was notified by BC Hydro power would be restored eventually in the next 11 days. We yeah, look forward to on or before November 28th to have some power. <laughs> but within hours of being contacted by Global News, BC Hydro changed that time frame, expecting the lights to instead be back on by Thursday evening pinning the issue largely on miscommunication. There are a few contributing factors in this particular case. We are waiting for the uh, declaration of completion from the customer's electrician. And in addition to that, we were also waiting for um, the permit from the city that we just received this morning. This all could have been avoided had the city removed the problem trees when she first flagged them years ago. They did fall on my, on my kid's bedroom. Had the trees been any stronger, had the wind been any stronger, it could have been a different outcome. With this outcome instead, one that's still not resolved and far from over. Sarah McDonald, Global News, Surrey. And some breaking developments. We're happy to report that just a short time ago, the homeowner called Global News to let us know that BC Hydro crews had arrived this evening at the home and they hope to have power restored later tonight. A BC Supreme Court jury saw some graphic photos from the scene of a murder at trial today. An RCMP forensics officer presented evidence and the jury heard audio of a phone call allegedly made by one of the two accused killers. Aaron MacArthur has the latest on the trial of two prison escapees charged with first-degree murder. Sitting in the public gallery just a meter or two away from the co-accused, Martin Payne's daughters held hands as they viewed some terrible images of their father's body. The jury seeing firsthand the level of violence committed in the Machosen man's murder. The afternoon was spent with a forensics identification member of the RCMP. Corporal Kimberly Sarson walked the jury through photographs she took on July 12, 2019, the day Martin Payne's body was discovered. He was found face down in the bathroom with a large pool of blood near his head. His right arm and leg were wrapped in duct tape. Nearby, a hatchet and large knife were discovered, as well as a tape dispenser, hacksaw and axe handle. Corporal Sarson also testified there was a notepad found in the master bedroom with what appeared to be demands to access bank accounts. The note reads, quote, what is your pins to cards, end quote. Golf Island Water Taxi, how can I help you? The jury also heard audio of a call made to Gulf Island Water Taxi on July 8th. The call only lasts 42 seconds. It was made just minutes after someone searched for Water Taxi online from Martin Payne's computer. 
The caller, who doesn't identify themselves, asks if Gulf Island Taxi goes to Vancouver. I was wondering, uh, um, do you go to Vancouver to mainland? When told no, the caller asked if there was any other way to get to the mainland. Okay. Do you know any other than the ferries that go to the mainland? Again, the answer was no. Corporal Sarson will remain on the stand for the remainder of the week. She is expected to continue to testify about her forensics investigation. Zachary Armitage and James Lee Bush stand accused of first-degree murder. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Some terrifying moments for staff and patients at Vancouver General Hospital earlier this week. Vancouver police were called to VGH to deal with a patient with a long history of mental illness who was allegedly threatening himself and others. As Amadagahi reports, it happened just as the province promises to roll out increased security measures at BC hospitals. It took the use of police crisis negotiators to disarm a man of a switchblade and bring him under custody Tuesday night. The shocking incident made all the more serious because it took place inside Vancouver's busiest hospital. Just another example of the potentially violent encounters seen in BC healthcare settings. There have been some high profile incidents over the last number of months. You can think of the incident at uh, Women's Hospital, hospital where uh, just a few months ago where we had somebody uh, brandishing a weapon. I heard over 30 code white calls related to aggression and violence being directed at healthcare workers just in the five days that I was in St. Paul's. And there is one particular incident, Russell Grab, who recently spent time in the ICU at St. Paul's Hospital, can recall clearly. In the middle of the night, the patient beside me in the bed beside me went absolutely ballistic and started fighting with five nurses and frankly as many security guards. It's obviously a very serious matter. The safety situation in BC hospital settings becoming so dire that the province has been forced to act, promising to hire 320 security officers and 14 violent prevention leads. So we're putting in place a, ch a fundamental change that will increase um, security in 27 largely acute care sites across BC and that's that's starting now. Well, right now it's the nurses who are the ones that respond to these uh, code white situations and they're the ones that have to be hands-on with the violent person. That's not what a job uh, nurse signed up for. Um, that is something that a security officer would be doing. In Grab's case, he applauds the nurses and hospital staff who dealt with a serious situation he says could have easily escalated even further. What I saw was exceptional talent in de-escalation. They did a fantastic job dealing with the situation, given how violent it was. Adding in these moments, the violence and abuse not only impacts staff at hospitals, but the well-being of other patients as well. Imadagahi, Global News. Burnaby RCMP have released pictures of a man they say is connected to an ongoing investigation of threats and intimidation. Police say the man visited the home of a family earlier this month and made a number of vague threats. They say the family's been receiving threatening phone calls and texts since September. Investigators believe it's related to a personal dispute, but say the man in the picture is not known to the victim or his family. They're asking anyone who can identify the man to please call Burnaby RCMP. Well, more evidence it's getting harder for families to make ends meet. A new report shows the living wage 
What it takes for two parents to support a family of four is far, far higher than BC's minimum wage. Kylie Stanton reports. Every item scanned is a reminder inflation is at a 40-year high. So it may come as no surprise the wage one needs to earn in order to afford it has gone up as well. And the main thing that's driving that increase is the increased cost of food and the increased cost of housing. This year's Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives Working for a Living Wage report found two parents in Metro Vancouver would have to earn $24.08 an hour to make ends meet for a family of four. But for the first time, the city of Victoria has become even more expensive, where $24.29 is needed. What's largely being driven by what it costs to transport food to Vancouver Island. Of course, it indicates a significant issue that we all have to begin addressing when it comes to cost of living. This year's increase in the living wage is being called unprecedented, up by 23.7% in Kelowna, 18.7% in Victoria, and 17.3% in Vancouver. Only widening the gap between the province's minimum wage of $15.65 per hour. Puts the spotlight back on government uh, to say, so what What function does the, does the minimum wage serve if that's the floor and it's not meeting families or individuals needs uh, to meet the cost of living as, as employees? But it could be even worse. The B.C. government has generated savings for families through policy changes, like the elimination of MSP premiums and significant childcare investments. This is huge. Still, with the rising costs, those savings are now effectively being wiped out. We are looking at all uh, options out there to, to make life more affordable for British Columbians. And uh, you will see in the coming days, uh, there are new bills going to the legislature to deal with the housing crisis and affordability. It's important to note the living wage does not include expenses like debt repayments, interest payments, entertainment, leisure or vacations let alone saving for a home or a child's education. And while inflation may go down, it's unlikely the cost of living will follow. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A local woman and her escape from Iran, an exclusive first-hand account of the terrifying crackdown on protesters fighting for women's rights. That's next on the News Hour. The interior town that can't seem to catch a break the threat that has some Princeton residents on evacuation alert again. Plus, Put the Sharpie up his nose and pulled it out of his mouth and my little 10-year-old brain went like, that's it. A Port Moody teenager conjures up a career in magic. Her impressive list of credits at only 18 later. Right now, though, a Metro Vancouver woman is back home after witnessing firsthand the anger rocking Iran. She participated in human rights demonstrations, was attacked by security forces, and says she witnessed atrocities happening in the streets. She's telling her story for the first time to Global News, and a warning, this report contains some disturbing content. Negar Mojtahedi reports. We will fight. We will die. We will take Iran back. Those are the words of protesters in Iran. You feel pain, torture, you know, everything, scared when you go out for protest. Nazanin, a B.C. woman who recently returned from Iran to her home in Metro Vancouver, joined protesters in her home country, demanding an end to the Islamic Republic. 
227 MPs in Iran recently voted to execute all protesters. Already five protesters have officially been sentenced to death. As Iran enters their third month of protests, the UN says at least 300 people, including nine-year-old Kion Pirfalak, have been killed, nearly 15,000 imprisoned, and yet their determination persists. One night that I joined the protesters in the street, and when the guardian of revolution and Basiji attacked us with tear gas and shooting, we all ran away, and one kind man opened his door and we rushed to his home. Nazanin's face being blurred for fear speaking to me could put her life in danger. She left BC for Iran a few weeks before the uprising started to help a family member with serious health issues. She saw the country transform after the death of Masa Amini, who in September died while in the custody of the so-called morality police for apparently wearing her hijab improperly. What she witnessed? Leaving her with trauma. Days I were in the no protest and coming still I have nightmare. Yes, I have a nightmare. I saw the brutality of regime. There was a young man who was shot in his chest and had a difficulty breathing. Other protesters helping him. Nazanin says her cousin, a political prisoner, was executed by the Islamic Republic nearly four decades ago. She says she thought deeply of her cousin while protesting. Me and other people, they had a tear on their eyes while we were in the street. We were waiting all 44 years for that moment. A moment she believes is the road to a revolution. Negar Moshehri, Global News. Talk about a serious public safety risk. A commercial bus heading from Whistler to Vancouver pulled over by police. The charges the driver is now facing. Plus. This has been a really abysmal year for fish. Salmon suffering the devastating impact of South Coast drought. High above an accident in Surrey on 140th and 80th, right in the intersection, delays in all directions. Sussex Insurance has auto plan and offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmart throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com. Open 9 to 9 every day. High above an accident in Surrey. I'm Jennifer Lee in Global One. A bus driver is facing impaired driving charges after a passenger called police during a trip from Whistler to Vancouver. 35 passengers were on board as the bus approached Horseshoe Bay in August. One of them noticed the driver looked drunk and was driving erratically, so that passenger called police. West Vancouver officers pulled the bus over on the Trans-Canada and got the driver to do a breathalyzer test. 65-year-old Craig Randall from Delta is now facing two impaired driving charges. A year has passed since devastating flooding in the Fraser Valley, but we're still learning about its impact, particularly to the local ecosystem. Water samples taken from across the region show the disaster left behind a large amount of human-created contaminants, including widespread traces of a recreational drug. Paul Johnson reports. One of the many consequences of last year's flooding disaster was the re-emergence of Sumas Lake, ancient body of water near Abbotsford that was drained decades ago for agriculture. The question 
We wanted to know was whether floods released a torrent of pollutants into fish habitat. The answer appears to be an unequivocal yes. Some of the findings were surprising even to a veteran toxicologist like Peter Ross. Cocaine. Cocaine and its metabolic byproduct was found in every single sample. In the weeks after the flood, researchers working in conjunction with the Raincoast Conservation Foundation and First Nations collected samples from dozens of surface and groundwater sites. Their analysis confirmed their suspicions that the waters were a complex soup of human-made chemicals. We found veterinary drugs, we found antibiotics, we found painkillers, we found diabetes and asthma medication. That one's a male. The immediate concern is that the Sumas Lake area contains critical fish habitat. Another male. Well, that positive cocaine test is certain to grab the headlines. It's what it stands for that's most important widespread contamination of the ecosystem in ways not fully understood. The First Nations people will tell you their lived experience told them something was up. Historically, we used to harvest right in, right in our front yard. Um, probably 20 years ago, we started noticing a, a different taste in the fish that are harvested. Well, minimizing our chemical footprint in the short term would be a great challenge. One thing that's probably doable is restoring as much as possible of the natural contours of the area's waterways to increase their filtration capacity. At the Sumas First Nation, Paul Johnson, Global News. This fall's drought, interrupted only briefly by limited rainfall, is wreaking havoc on a volunteer-run salmon hatchery in Metro Vancouver. As Julie Nolan reports, they're scrambling to salvage what they're calling an abysmal season. This water is like liquid gold for the salmon at the Hyde Creek Hatchery. Trying to drive her to the net. Erica got one. Because of a shortage of water, a rescue operation is underway. These coho have been pulled from the creek to have their eggs harvested. The water has disappeared in a large part, and the fish that are in the creek have nowhere to go. They can't spawn. Some small pools, but this creek is mostly dried up and bare. Experts are concerned because there are more dead fish here than living ones. From atmospheric river last November to virtual drought conditions now, it's just a challenge for us trying to get water. And without fresh, clean water from Mother Nature, the salmon population is dwindling. Our concern too is if the fish have spawned already and there's eggs in the gravel, are they viable? Will they survive without water? And they can't survive. Okay, you can flip her over. So this group of volunteers is working with experts from fisheries and oceans to take the harvested eggs. Nice. And fertilize them. This is a smaller uh, watershed um, and it's been affected by a lot of different things and it's more susceptible to these pressures like climactic and weather, weather pressures we're having. Rain in the forecast can't come soon enough. This is a troubling year. If we have a couple of troubling years in a row, you're right. This is a very dire situation. Projects like this matter because they're really trying to get a self-sustaining population back. With an impact on the entire ecosystem, this hatchery can help bring both the coho and chum populations back to life. Julie Nolan, Global News. All right, drought's the big problem. Let's check in with Christy for a look at the weather forecast outside St. Paul's Hospital tonight, Christy. 
Thanks, Chris. Yeah, so tonight is a big night because we're officially going to be lighting St. Paul's Hospital. There are 200 stars on the front, each one of them uh, highlighting a donor. Uh, St. Paul's has actually been putting on Lights of Hope for 25 years. This year, they're hoping to raise $3.6 million. So it's a very important cause, as you well know, because St. Paul's Hospital actually uh, serves many, many people in the lower mainland and around BC. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about weather, and we'll be coming back to actually light up the light. Uh, as you mentioned, yeah, drought certainly has been an issue. We've been very dry for the past week, and we still have a couple of more dry days on the way before we t return to more fall-like weather. How did the fog clear? Well, we've got uh, outflow winds, and they were strong this morning with gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour, and that helped to clear things out. Tomorrow, another gorgeous day on the way, but cold. Those of you in through the north and in the interior will not climb up above the freezing mark. So a high of only minus four in Kelowna, but we will warm up across the south coast. We will see patchy fog and certainly frost in the morning, but we've got two days of sunshine and warmth on the way with highs of 11 degrees. It's not until Sunday that we'll see a little bit of cloud cover and it is expected to remain dry over the weekend. Tonight's center windows weather window coming to you from Monty Lake where you can see last year's July fire off in the distance here, but that's a great fall shot. All right, Chris, back to you. We'll be back in about 10 minutes time to light up the lights. All right. Can't wait to see you flick the switch. Thanks very much, Christy. Right now, caught on video, thieves use a truck to smash through a building. Where it happened and what they were after, coming up in a moment. Plus... You know, we're going to have to take it one day at a time, but it is something that, that causes me some anxiety. On the eve of his swearing-in as BC's 37th Premier, how David Eby feels about the job and putting his family in the spotlight. High above the Massey Tunnel, counterflow is out. Northbound traffic is starting to ease off after a very busy afternoon commute. Through a charitable partnership between Kermac Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermac Collision and Autogloss, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. High above the Massey Tunnel in Global One, I'm Jennifer Lee. Princeton has been in the news a lot lately as it struggles to recover from last year's flood and now a new threat. An unstable slope has some residents on evacuation alert. Taya Fast has the latest. Concerns surrounding the instability of a slope in Princeton triggered a road closure, bus cancellations and an evacuation alert on Wednesday. Uh, the hillside above the road has started to slough and because of that, um, it became unsafe to have crews working under there and traffic and, and school kids walking. Old Headley Road from the Brown Bridge to the Old Merritt Highway intersection will remain closed until further notice. Once we've uh, gotten that geotech report, then we'll, we'll know exactly what's happening. But until then, um, we don't want to risk anybody's safety. The Brown Bridge will stay open to westbound traffic and pedestrians, but if the hillside does come down... It would be pretty impactful because uh, the wooden bridge uh, is only rated for five tons, so we can't get any equipment across there. Um, you know, fire apparatus, uh, equipment, you know, heavy equipment like uh, road clearing equipment, snow removal equipment, uh, garbage trucks, you name it. Now, until the roads reopen, school buses will not be running for students at John Allison Elementary School, and the kitty bus will be unavailable for students at the bridge for Million Force and Princeton Secondary School. And uh, it also means that kids out in Tulamine and Comont don't have a bus in the town right now. And being that there is only one road in and out of the area, an evacuation alert has been issued for all of Jacobson Road and a property along Tulamine Avenue. 
Meanwhile, Coyne is asking residents to avoid the area if possible. There is no timeline as to when the road will reopen. TFAS, Global News, Princeton. John Horgan spent his last day as BC Premier at a public event with BC Chamber of Commerce. Speaking with CKNW's Simi Sarah, Horgan reminisced about his time in office in front of members of the Chamber of Commerce in Vancouver this afternoon. He says being Premier has been a great job and he's most proud of his involvement in the work passing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People in the BC Legislature. We passed that bill unanimously, and that's why I'm so proud of it, because it has been a contentious issue for, for generations in British Columbia and in Canada. Uh, but legislators in a minority parliament uh, passed the declaration, and now we're doing the hard work of implementing the various components. But it will be good for the economy, it will be good for communities, and most importantly, it will be good for Indigenous people. David Eby will be sworn into office as BC's 37th Premier tomorrow morning. And that ceremony will take place at the Musqueam Community Centre in Vancouver. Now recently our Richard Zussman had a chance to sit down with Premier-designate Eby and his young family to talk about the big transition, expectations and the big job ahead. Seven. Wait, what are you counting? Perched nearly eight feet in the air, Iva Eby has a unique perspective of the world. Closer to the ground, her father, David, has a different perspective. One now coming not just with the weight of a three-year-old on his shoulders, but the weight of an entire province. It's not going to be uh, easy for us at home, but I think, you know, any family trying to balance these things is it's the same for us. On Friday, Eby will be sworn in as British Columbia's 37th Premier. Global News being provided unique access to what everyday life looks like for the 46-year-old. Balancing a busy household, including Iva and her eight-year-old brother Ezra, and his wife Kaylee, a family doctor. Now mixing in the top political job in the province. You know, I think it's something that all families face uh, with little kids. You know, how do you balance work and, and having time with your partner and uh, also showing up for work and doing a good job. And this job is a unique one, but it's, that challenge is not unique. He's a very relaxed, funny guy. Oh, okay. And you see it naturally come out when he's with the children. Although the work schedule will get busier, the goal is to still get home for family dinner or at least a bedtime story. Both Evie and his wife knowing the added pressure this job puts on the kids. I think probably more so Ezra than Iva. He had an incident at school where an older kid kind of ran up and was asking him questions. It was a kid he didn't know very well. Um, but we're really lucky in their personalities. While Evie's life at home will rarely be seen, his life here in this chamber will be of intense focus. And Evie knows he will be judged by voters based on how he manages the big three issues, health care, affordability, and public safety. My goal is to have really concrete, visible examples for British Columbians about how we've made a difference. Oh, oh he's happy. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. British Columbians currently only know a small part about Evie. Raised in Kitchener, settling in Vancouver as an activist lawyer. He loves spending time with his family, tea parties with Iva, baseball with Ezra. He doesn't drink beer, but he does like cider. He loves music and cooking is a passion. Food is really important and I think that'll be a way that our team connects is around food uh, and, uh, and eating together and that's the way our family connects and, uh, and that's an important thing for me. Oh, thanks, Ez. A team he officially takes over Friday 
while not forgetting the role he plays on his most important team, his family. Oh, the Elsa dress. Oh, my. The Elsa dress. Richard Zussman, Global News, Vancouver. Doesn't get much cuter. All right, scientists believe they've developed a potentially game-changing fentanyl vaccine. A team of researchers at the University of Houston has developed a vaccine they say prevents people from getting high on fentanyl. The researchers say the vaccine stops fentanyl from getting into the brain and could protect people inadvertently exposed to fentanyl, as well as those who are addicted and trying to quit using. The synthetic opioid is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine and is responsible for thousands of overdose deaths every year. The vaccine will undergo more testing. A smash and grab at a Nanaimo liquor store. The theft caught on video, but it wasn't booze the thieves were after. What we're learning about this crime next. And coming up in sports, getting defensive. What the Canucks need to do to start winning. The Nanaimo RCMP have released surveillance video of two ATM thieves using a pickup truck as a battering ram. It happened early in the morning of November 11th, Remembrance Day. Police say the thieves backed into the front entrance of a Liquor Plus store three times before they finally got in. They threw the ATM into the truck and drove off. The machine was found the next day empty. Police say the truck is a mid-2000s burgundy-colored F-350 that sustained significant damage to the rear quarter panel. One of the male suspects wore a black hoodie and dark jeans. The other wore a bright blue hoodie, blue ball cap, and black track pants with a white stripe. If you have any information about the crime, then I'm RCMP would like to speak to you. All right, we'll check in again with meteorologist Christy Gordon, who's live at St. Paul's Hospital for the Lights of Hope tonight. Christy, this is a kind of a milestone in our festive season. That's right. A milestone in that it kicks off the festival season here downtown, but it's also a milestone because this is the 25th anniversary of Lights of Hope. I want to introduce you to Dick Follet. He's president and CEO of St. Paul's Foundation. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into these lights, 200 stars at six weeks to put it up. But really, what is this all about? It's not just about lights. No, it's not, Christy, and thank you for being here. I think this is your seventh year. It, you know, it's, it's more than just the lights. It's about the community coming together to really support the frontline healthcare workers to purchase much-needed equipment, do the research we need to do for things that come at us all the time. We've got doctors here, physicians, donors. This is really about the community coming together for BC to make healthcare better. Tell us a little bit more about where the money goes. Well, as I said, we purchase much-needed equipment for those frontline workers. That, that you know, it, it's really about patient-centered care. How do we fund the things that really matter to the patients on the front line? Uh, that's everything from creature comfort uh, things, not only here at St. Paul's, but in all the Providence locations around BC. So it's a very exciting night, and yes, we're hoping to raise $3.6 million. We are going to do the countdown now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are all you right. ready? <laughs> all right. Five. Four, three, two, one. Woohoo!
Well, there you have it, Chris. The lighting of the lights here at St. Paul's Hospital is officially the holiday season downtown here. It's so nice for the parents, patients that are inside to have that uh, nice spirit. If you want to donate, go to help St. Paul's slash Lights of Hope. $3.6 million is the goal this year. Dick, thank you so much for having us. And here we are. The holiday season is here. It is upon us. Thank you, everyone. Chris, back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And thanks, Dick, as well for... Uh, all the work you put in down there. All right, Bruce Boudreaux uh, and the Canucks need to find a way to win. Squires here with a look at that. Well, they won their last game, but they still need to win a lot more than mm -hmm. that. He's uh, trying to improve his team's defensive play. He's been trying to do it all year, but he says it's more hard work than anything else. It hasn't changed since 1950 that you got to win the battles. If you win the one-on-one -on -one battles, you usually end up winning the game. That's what the Canucks practice today in preparation for tomorrow night's game against L.A. Win the battles. All right, also tonight. Being able to go up to anybody and create this, like, unexplainable moment of impossibility. The Port Moody teenager with a gift for magic and the moment of amazement that first inspired her. Coming up. The buck stops here when the puck stops here. And I don't even know if that makes sense. But no, but you know what? It sounded good. Yeah, that's all that matters. It's all that matters sometimes. <laughs> don't try to decipher it. Just say it. Uh, there's really no defending the Canucks defense this season. It's the reason they've gotten off to a terrible start this year. In 17 games so far this season, the Canucks are allowing four goals a game. You cannot have that kind of stat and expect to make the playoffs. They know that, and it's their focus to fix it. Go back to the Buffalo game. The Canucks won, but they needed five goals to do it because the Sabres scored four themselves. And it's not just that the Canucks are allowing four goals a game, it's how they're getting scored on. Odd man rushes and own zone confusion. Sometimes when you lose and you're, you're trying to look for, for the home run and, and you're trying to, to look for answers. Um, instead of going out there and just play the game and, and battle hard and, and the game will come to you. It's not like the Canucks have the wrong defensive strategy. It's more the wrong mindset. It's why Vancouver's players are put through battle drills on the boards at practice. I mean, it's something we harp on all day that, it, you know, hockey can be, you can make it as complicated as you want or as non-complicated. And it hasn't changed since 1950 that you got to win the battles. If you win the one-on-one -on -one battles, you usually end up winning the game. Of course, the Canucks haven't gotten the bailout they got last year from their goaltenders, especially Thatcher Demko. He still hasn't stolen a game for Vancouver this year. He showed good signs in Boston. He was a lot better in Boston. His movement was quicker. He was more direct. I know they scored four on him, but that's a, I liked the way he was trending after the Boston game. Canada's final exhibition game before the World Cup starts next Wednesday. Canada against Japan. Japan is higher ranked than the Canadians. This was going to be a tough game for Canada. No Alfonso Davies, no Stefan Ustakio, both hurt, not playing. First goal goes to Japan, nine minutes in, Yuki Soma. But Canada was very good on the corner kicks today, and they scored here on one. Steven Vittoria. It's Hoylet with the corner. Hutchinson moves it forward, and Vittoria is the guy who finally knocks it in the net. And this was in the 21st minute, so Canada came back quickly to tie Japan. Canada had more shots than Japan did. They had a higher percentage of the play. Lucas Cavallini coming in in the 71st minute as well. 
as Joel Waterman, who grew up here, played his youth soccer in Alder Grove, Langley and Surrey, played at Trinity Western University. That is a penalty for Canada. Richie Larea had brought down in extra time, and who do they give it to? Now the former Whitecap, Lucas Cavallini, who gets a bit cheeky with the uh, penalty kick. I don't think Herbman liked the trip because he doesn't want anybody hurt before the World Cup begins. It is, it is in. Okay, Lucas, just drive it into the corner. But he does get it across and it's 2-1 for Canada. And as we said, they will start it for real next Wednesday against Belgium. Vancouver Giants sporting the Team Canada 1972 Summit Series uniforms at practice. They'll wear these tomorrow against Kamloops, 7.30 at the Langley Event Centre. It's the 50th anniversary of the series that Canada won over the Soviet Union in eight games. Pete Mahomes is part of that team. He'll be there tomorrow night, part of White Spot Legends Night, watching the kids wear his old uniform. It certainly makes me proud of the fact that we were able to uh, take something that was brand new to all of Canada at the time represented our flag and uh, the next thing you know uh, uh, here we are 50 years later talking about it. Race down with Peter Mahopoulos going in on goal, right in, That goal stands the test of time. <laughs> it's still a great goal. Yep. Alright, thanks Squire. Up next, a teenage magician confounding crowds everywhere she goes. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. A Port Moody teenager is making a name for herself in the world of magic. Gabriella Lester is casting a spell on audiences and is poised to start a European tour. And as Jay Durant shows us on This is BC, the 18-year-old's future looks positively magical. Half-buttoned, yes, half-buttoned, yes? Yes, it is. Whoa. Hard to believe that at only 18, Gabriella Lester is already an accomplished magician. It has six dots. She's been working on the art all through her teens. Let's take a look at what you chose, Brian. By now, she's performed more than 50 shows at the legendary Magic Castle in Hollywood. We can remember it. You can show me, yeah, they'll give you a huge hand. Brian, everybody. It's almost impossible to even get in the door because it's you have to know someone to know someone and it's kind of very exclusive invite only. What a goofball trick. And she'll make an appearance on Penn and Teller's show Fool Us. My eyes, all right. Were you nervous? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm always nervous. Look at the top card. Whether I'm doing like a card trick for two people or performing for 2,000 people. This was her introduction to magic. Eight-year-old Gabriella watching street performer Ross McCourt in London, England. Just this past summer, ten years later, she went back to London to meet him. And I spent forever trying to find him to thank him because it's just like, I love what I do and I'm so passionate and grateful about what I do. But it was a performance by magician Sean Farquhar at Eagle Mountain Middle School that really blew her away. I came up to him to get an autograph and he put the Sharpie up his nose and pulled it out of his mouth and... My little 10-year-old brain went like, that's it. Sean has become Gabriella's mentor, guiding her towards more creative and daring performances. Hey, I'm upside down now. The dangling straight jacket escape, a little fire thrown into the mix, Woo! and the show-stopping levitating table. I must get a reaction. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's come a long way from those performances in the Grand Hall of Heritage Woods Secondary. Yeah. 
Now she'll be holding shows in Europe starting early next year. At 18, most people are just starting to figure out their dreams. Gabriella Lester is already living hers. I'm so lucky. Like, I'm so grateful. I just have no doubt, like, this is my place, this is my world of people. <laughs> Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell, just like Gabriella's, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc@globalnews.ca. Good luck on that European tour. Great stuff. All right, beautiful night down there to see the stars outside St. Paul's Hospital, Christy. That's right. They're beautiful choir singing right now too, Chris. It's Sarah Choir, and uh, there's lots of people out here enjoying the start of the festive season. Uh, if you'd like to donate, go to Help St. Paul slash Lights of Hope. And uh, Chris, we've got a dry night on the way and lots of sunshine in the couple, next couple of days. Good to know. What do you got, Squire? Uh, Nathan Rourke just got named Canadian of the Year in the CFL. Oh, great to know. Congratulations, Nathan, and thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night.